The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Sunday, November 27th, 2022. All right. Somewhere underneath this absurd spectacle I see before me are five broken pieces of Captain Rios. Hey, everybody, this is your host, Peter, with the 21st Digest of this second volume, covering Monday, November 21st through Friday, November 25th, 2022. Marvel Saga Monday, taking a look at issue 11 of the Marvel Saga, the official history of the Marvel Universe. And as it says on the inside cover, the magazine that retells in chronological narrative form the most exciting events of Marvel Universe history. This particular issue was released in July of 1986 by Peter Sanderson, the writer and researcher, and the cover was by Keith Pollard and Al Williamson. So let's talk about the cover. We have on the main image the X-Men once again, just as on issue number 10. This time they are battling Magneto. It is a recreation of the first issue cover from 1963 by Jack Kirby and Saul Brodsky. The differences on the Saga cover, Marvel Girl is using her powers, Angel isn't holding some kind of battering ram to attack Magneto, and Iceman is wielding a club, an ice club, rather than just throwing snowballs, because how is that going to work? And then on the cover image, we see the team of X-Factor looking on behind them, because, you know, the saga is clearly also promotion. And when you read the blurb, it says, See today's X-Factor in their first battle together when they were the original X-Men. And then it says, Featuring Magneto. And then the side image, plus the awesome origin of Molecule Man, plus earth-shattering events in the lives of the Fantastic Four, Iron Man, Thor, Spider-Man, the Avengers, the Hulk, and many more. And then when you go to the back cover, we have Iron Man shedding his old gold armor for his first uh, red and gold armor. Ant-Man becomes Giant Man, and the Avengers look on as Hulk and Namor shake hands. And then on the inside cover, we get the first letter column for the series. It is unnamed at this point. And the only letter they print is from Bill Middleton from Clovis, New Mexico. And Bill writes, uh, one of the things he writes, been reading since Avengers number six, and he loves how the saga is working to mesh all the various stories, especially for his understanding, you know, especially with like the complexities of the history of the X-Men and Thor. And then I had to laugh about his closing paragraph where he says, this is the only series ever that might someday deserve to be reprinted as a set of hardbound books. Wow. How far we've come since 1986. So Marvel Saga, Book 11, Days of Power. All the information in this issue is pulled from Amazing Spider-Man number 7, Fantastic Four 19 through 21, Journey into Mystery 97 and 98, Secret Wars 2 number 9, which was just released in December of 1985, um, and this issue of Marvel Saga was released in July of 1986, Sergeant Fury, 12 and 29, Strange Tales, 114, Supervillain Team-Up, 17, Tales of Suspense, 45 and 48, Tales to Astonish, 49, and X-Men, 1, 2, and 203, 
also from December 1985. The uh, And then I skipped over Avengers. So information is pulled from Avengers 2, 3, Annual 2, and Issue 269, which is the closest any recent comic has come to being included within the Marvel Saga. Because Avengers 269 was released in April of 1986, and this particular comic was dropped in December, uh, excuse me, July of 1986. So that is mad close, and um, it has to do with Kang, so it's probably just either one little narrative, one little, like, sort of Marvel Saga narrative, or... It's maybe one particular panel, like a drawing of somebody. I didn't really go to look it up. Maybe I should go do that. I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to stop this, and I'm going to do that right now. Yep, it looks like it's it's more about the information within that issue, but also one little panel of Immortus. They use that uh, for Marvel Saga as well. So that's crazy. April to July, That's that's just crazy. All right, let's dig into the actual issue, starting with... A splash page of new art by Keith Pollard and Al Williamson showing what X-Factor looks like today versus what the X-Men looked like back in their first appearances. Uh, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool opening splash page. Um, when you notice the differences, it's kind of fun, right? Because Beast is back to his non-furry self. Marvel Girl, I think when she was resurrected, she had telekinesis, but maybe her telepathy didn't come back, which is how she was presented back in X-Men number one, right? I think that's what happened. And at this point, Magneto is running the X-Men instead of being a villain. X-Factor is up to issue nine at this point of the Marvel saga. Pages two through six is X-Men number one, basically X-Men versus Magneto at Cape Citadel. From their first adventure, uh, we don't quite get the mutant hysteria that we are going to get, and Magneto isn't all-powerful just yet, right? I have to laugh because, first of all, when Professor Xavier calls the X-Men, again, it's that whole Professor Xavier is a jerk. He's like, you will have 15 seconds to report to my study. Um, And he's going to send them to battle, right? They're kids, but he's going to send them. He even says, this will be your baptism by fire. And then when they're done, he says, you have justified all our long hours of training, all our sacrifices, all our dreams, and now return to me, my X-Men. Yeah, let's just send a whole bunch of kids out, you know, untested. Well, not untested, but certainly not out in public, you know, uh, up against a powerful mutant. So, yeah, Professor Xavier. Hmm. Uh, Pages 6 through 7 is all about Tales of Suspense 45, where Tony Stark meets uh, Harold Happy Hogan for the first time during an accident in a car race. This is also the first appearance of Pepper Potts, who was modeled originally by Don Heck, artist Don Heck, on Ann B. Davis's character of Schultze from the Bob Cummings show. I don't know what that show is, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was such a, you know, Ann B. Davis. <laughs> and then the saga narrates that Pepper would change her looks later months later dressing and making herself up differently and she will prove to be quite pretty and I thought oh is that because they wanted her to be sort of like a plain Jane you know or maybe try to distance her from that Ann B. Davis character 
sure enough, that's what she does in issue 50 of Tales of Suspense. She, she totally has a new look. Uh, and then the saga says that Iron Man battles Jack, Jack Frost, who will later be known as the Blizzard. Pages 8 through 10, we have Thor trying to petition Odin to allow him to marry Jane Foster. Uh, Loki sends the Lava Men after Thor, yet another subterranean race within the Marvel Universe. I've been taking stock of various locations and how these locations could have various marvels that could intersect within them, such as Tibet and Transia, whichever South Asian war is going on, but also the tunnels underneath Earth, which so far we got the Mole Men, the Lava Men, and Tyrannus. So, uh, you know, that's always that's going to be fun to read those subterranean wars way down the road. Pages 10 through 12, vignettes of major appearances of adversaries, such as Nathaniel Richards, Rama Tut, where he enslaves the Fantastic Four in ancient Egypt, all for the love of Sue Storm, of course. And the saga narrates, aided by the time-traveling sorcerer Doctor Strange, the Fantastic Four regain their free will and cause Rama Tut to flee to the future. So that little nugget of information is from Doctor Strange 53 in 1982, a story by Roger Stern, Marshall Rogers, Terry Austin. So again, this is the way the saga is able to look at an older story and then go, oh, there was a later story that connected to it, and they can put those two narratives together, whether we remember it or not, right? Doctor Strange, maybe, really, it was kind of probably a way to explain some random weird event that happened in those original Marvel Age stories and to give them a little more meaning. Um, and then the saga briefly explains the other different versions of Rama Tut, Scarlet Centurion, Kang the Conqueror, Immortus, just like I talked about with that Avengers issue. And then Thor battles Cobra with the saga referencing that Cobra will later go up against Daredevil and Spider-Man and will form the Serpent Society Human Torch versus a fake Captain America, X-Men versus the Vanisher. And the saga gets to promote again. And it says here uh, that the Vanisher will lead a group of mutants known as the Fallen Angels. Their story will be told in an upcoming limited series by that name. And Fallen Angels number one would be released at the end of 1986. Pages 13 through 14. Hank Pym, once known as Ant-Man, becomes Giant-Man, just like totally out of the blue and the sequence that we see here with the giant hank pym trapped by his own house is how the issue of tales to astonish 49 opened all those many years ago it was like one issue you're reading about ant-man the next issue boom he's giant man and he says when i was giant sized i was almost too weak to move so now in my head canon i like to say that you know, when we get giant size X-Men and we get giant size Avengers or any giant size book, it's all because Hank Pym uttered those words all those many years ago. We should also make note that Janet and Sue should probably start a therapy group for women dating unromantic scientific types. And we learn at this point, Giant Man can only grow to be 12 feet. Pages 15 through 16 is the Avengers versus Space Phantom, masquerading as each of the Avengers so he can get them to battle each other, causing dissension. Hulk decides to leave the team. 
I'm sure it's written somewhere why the writers got rid of him so early in the Avengers title. Um, maybe it's because he's just too powerful or too erratic. I don't know. Or he's better as kind of like an adversary than a team member. So uh, it's also interesting to note that Iron Man says here about the Wasp, she's hypersensitive to certain stimuli and she senses trouble. Almost like a wasp spidey sense, which do they keep that? I don't I don't think so. Pages 17 through 22, we have a long sequence with the Fantastic Four and their first encounter with the Molecule Man. So Uatu the Watcher warns them, shows the Fantastic Four his origin, and that he has the power to destroy universes. And then the saga shows how the accident that turned Owen Reese into the Molecule Man opened up a pinhole to a neighboring sentient universe, giving us that connection to the Beyonder and to both Secret Wars series, which I think we already learned that information um, probably in the second Secret Wars title, I think. Uh, eventually, you know, the Molecule Man is defeated. Within his encounter, he levitates the Baxter Building over Times Square. And that just makes me think of... Some of the sequences in Marvels by Busiek and Ross, where Alex Ross is so good at making these large dramatic events seem so real on the page. And how many times has New York been terrorized? You know, certainly within the Fantastic Four universe. I mean, it's always so big, you know, it's it's either the Baxter building getting ready to be dropped. It's the Molecule Man covering all of the island of Manhattan, or it's Galactus showing up, right? In many ways, it's like, there must, there must be such trauma to live in Manhattan within the Marvel Universe, right? Like, when the New Yorkers went through 9-11, you know, we, we still celebrate it, we still remember it. This is like, there's a 9-11 that happens every week within the Marvel Universe. It's shocking. It's crazy. Someone should... Um, we, we, we need a story about that. By the way, I should make mention that a lot of these adversaries and villains are going right back to that green and purple coloring scheme. Kang, Immortus, Cobra, Space Phantom, Molecule Man, even the Vanisher is green-based. I really do dig that. Pages 22 through 24, we get back to Iron Man, and we see him getting his red and gold armor. It's less bulky. Uh, so he can go up against Mr. Doll, who's kind of like a low-rent puppet master, if you will. Pages 24 through 25 is a rematch with uh, Vulture and Spider-Man, where he gets his first injury, and he also finds his first romantic partner in Betty Brant. Pages 25 through 30, the Fantastic Four versus the Hate Monger, with the help of CIA agent Nick Fury. So the Sergeant Fury comic was only up to issue four by this point. And this is Fantastic Four issue, what, 2021? So I'm guessing that this is Nick Fury's first modern age appearance, quote unquote modern, right? Because it is 1960 whatever. So I, I think that's cool, right? Because clearly they made Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos, but then they were like, that takes place in World War II. Let's bring him up to date. He doesn't have the eye patch yet. He's not part of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, and if you just need any more evidence that 
that first 100 issues of the Fantastic Four or the first 60 issues or the first 25 issues. I mean, so much of the Marvel Universe was created um, in terms of first appearances, in terms of connections, you know, certain characters meeting each other from, from different books. That's it. Is it any wonder why the Fantastic Four are the first family of the Marvel Universe? So I, that's really cool. I didn't know that little bit about Nick Fury. It's then revealed that the hate monger is a clone of Hitler, which is just creepy. And then we finish things up with pages 30 through 32, a random meeting between Iron Man and the X-Men, and then a Hulk-Namor team-up to eventually battle the Avengers next issue, which is where we leave off. So in terms of the title, Days of Power, I guess that makes sense, right? Ant-Man becomes Giant-Man, that's a new power. Molecule Man is basically raw power. Um, Iron Man upgrading his suit. Hate Monger's Power of Persuasion. Yeah, that's a nice title. It kind of makes sense. So there you go. Just some quick thoughts on Marvel Saga issue 11. We will return into digests with Marvel Saga issue number 12. So if you are a longtime listener, not just to the Daily Rios, but with any sort of podcasting that I've been a part of um, for many, many years, you might recognize or you might have recognized that opening intro music. So I use it for The Tower, my new Teen Titans podcast that is woefully neglected, Um, But where it originally was dropped was for the old DC Noise episodes that I used to do for Derek Coward's comic book Noise family. So that music was created by Derek for DC Noise. And uh, yesterday's date of November 21st was the 15th anniversary of of DC Noise, episode number one, November 21st, 2007. Um, I produced the first three episodes of DC Noise. It started because I emailed Derek asking, probably a bit cheekily, I was like, has anyone claimed DC Noise? In response to, um, there was a Marvel Noise on the comic book noise family there was an indie noise but i i wanted to know if anybody had claimed dc noise yet and he said nope it's yours two months later november 21st 2007 uh, i released episode number one now i only got three episodes in the five months (laughs) or within five months i only got three episodes but i was certainly digging the potential And it, you know, it was my first real attempt at solo podcasting away from CGS. You know, I I recorded a few solo CGS episodes. There were a few interviews that were one-on-one. And in July of 2007, I did a footnote-style episode on the covers to Titans 23 through 25. But that's not quite the same, right? This was... um, a new idea that I was making up from the beginning and I had to think about what I was going to do. 
I just wished I would have kept with it, you know, if I would have put out more episodes within five months, not just three, I would have probably chugged along. And I know thinking about the creation of it, I wanted it to be very different from any other DC show that was out there at the time, one of them being Raging Bullets, which is still going on to this day with Sean and Jim. Uh, But I wanted it to be different. I wanted it to be a little more all-encompassing, include some news, include um, all the things that I like to do with podcasting. In many ways, those first three episodes are pretty much a, a good precursor to what the Daily Rios, and especially the Daily Rios Digest, what those podcasts would become. I had segments, I had ideas, um, I tried to make things connect. You know, for instance, uh, for episode three, it was a whole episode about the uh, DC's trinity of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. For episode two... A lot of that was about sequels. Uh, I looked at Superman 2, the Donner cut. I talked about a crisis sequel that never appeared, you know. Um, So it was me being probably too clever, but it was me just trying. That's how I get interested, and that's how I, that's where my creative juices start to flow when I kind of think narratively about what it is I'm doing with the episode, and that's what I tried to do. Um... A lot of DC noise, those first three episodes, was inspired by... I used to watch Keith Olbermann at the time when he was on whatever channel. Uh, And his broadcast was very much like that. It was segmented. It was humorous at times. It was delivered as news, but it was also editorial commentary. And it, uh, you know, it's very much like... um, infotainment, news entertainment, you know, it's the same thing what Fox News is, you know, Tucker Carlson is not news, he's entertainment, you know, Um, they have a view, the view is very much that way, you know, it's not news, you don't go to the view to watch news, you go to the view to watch, to hear people's opinions, you know, whether they're right or wrong, same thing with, I think there's a version of the view on Fox News, with whatever that jerk-off's name is, Greg, whatever. Um, And it's just a bunch of people who like to think that they're like newscasters. Oh, look, Geraldo Rivera's on there. So they're, no, it's it's personality-driven. It's opinion-driven. It's editorial commentary. It is not news at all. And that's really what some of the segments were for DC Noise. It was like me trying to look at the news for DC and give a little bit of editorial commentary. And I really liked it. I really liked how those first three episodes um, played out. Eventually, I gave it up. Um, There was going to be another DC-centric show on the comic book noise family. And I just felt like, uh, you know, uh, not that there was going to be competition, but it didn't make sense to have two types of shows like that, even if they were different. Um, And my schedule was so erratic that I just ha- said, you know, fine, you know, go ahead and take the take the show, take the name, which they did. It's still going on to this day in some format, I think. I mean, I think DC Noise then became like DC Spotlight and something else and something else. Um, I don't know if they've actually released a true DC Noise in a while. I think Daryl Taylor was a part of it for a while. Um, but yeah, the first three episodes of DC Noise... The first episode released 15 years ago on November 21st, 2007. That very much is, like I said, the that was something that probably kickstarted 
um, my wanting to do more solo podcasting. And then eventually in 2012, that's what I did with the Daily Rios. Um, it's it's kind of why I, I really like that Daryl Taylor started DC All-Stars. Even though it, we haven't done an episode in a long time, it's a way to kind of zero in within the DC universe. So hopefully we make a resurgence of that. And, you know, I have my own podcast and I could do whatever. I could do any kind of um, specific uh, podcasting if I wanted to. And I've always thought about trying to do another DC-centric show, but it kind of just makes more sense to continue doing what I'm doing. And um, otherwise, I'm just going to get distracted again. And I don't need more distractions, but I just wanted to take the time to spotlight, uh, you know, that 15th anniversary because it meant something to me. And um, I did release those first three episodes on the Daily Rios at some point. Um, I asked Derek if I could do that and just rebroadcast for anybody who had never heard them before. So you can go on the website and you can find those episodes, just episodes. You can just look up DC Noise and you can give those a listen and, uh, you know, go back to 2007. <laughs> so there you go. Happy 15th anniversary to DC Noise. She'd been sailing for 19 and 5 eighths days past glaciers of melted plastic through fields of green, glowing ice that burned her eyes. She had seen no other living soul upon the water. She hoped it would stay that way. She would have sailed right past the tower and never once looked back. But, as it was, life intervened. And that was all it took. To change everything. To change the entire world. Well, at least what was left of it. New Comics Wednesday recommendations for the week of November 23rd. Starting off with two books from the new imprint Frank Miller Presents... We have Ronin Book 2, a sequel to the 80s Ronin series. The first issue of six by Frank Miller, Philip Tan, Daniel Henriquez. This six-part miniseries follows the original work and takes Cassie and her newborn son across the ravaged landscape of America. So the layouts are by Miller. The finished art is by Philip Tan and Daniel Henriquez. $7.99. I don't I don't know. Am I am I in the market for a Ronin uh, sequel? I suppose so. It's not all by Frank Miller, right? So I don't know how it's going to feel, especially considering that first six six issue series is so bizarre and so interesting to look at and you can see how it's like a middle ground, a stepping stone from da from the Daredevil work to uh, Dark Knight. So I guess we'll see. And then also from Frank Miller Presents, another first issue of six Ancient Enemies, this one by Dan DiDio and Danilo Beruth. Dan DiDio is working with Frank Miller to, you know, get this imprint out. So it only makes sense, I suppose, that he is also writing. This is also $7.99. Earth becomes the final battlefield for a centuries-old war between two alien races. But this final conflict becomes the unintentional breeding ground 
for a new generation of superpowers, each with the ability to influence the outcome of the war. Some superpowers choose sides, while others struggle to maintain their independence with the hope of saving the Earth. Not the most original premise, right? And it does make me wonder if any of that is a holdover of anything that Didio wanted to do, you know, before he left DC, uh, before he left or was removed from DC Comics. Um, yeah, not not exactly, uh, you know, a unique premise, but uh, there you go. Two new books, and there will be more from Frank Miller Presents. From TKO Studios, look for the sentient graphic novel, $19.99, by Jeff Lemire and Gabriel Walta. This is a horror space opera. Welcome to the USS Montgomery. When a separatist attack kills the adults on board a colony ship in deep space, the onboard AI Valerie must help the ship's children survive the perils of space. But as they are pursued by dangerous forces, can Valerie become more than what she was programmed to be, a savior to these children? I love me some sci-fi, some space opera, and, you know, Jeff Lemire can spin a good yarn, so we'll see how that does. From Boom Studios, Once Upon a Time at the End of the World, number one, $4.99. This is by Jason Aaron, Alexandra uh, Tefing Tefingi, and Mike Del Mundo. In this epic post-apocalyptic tale, Maceo and Mezzi have never met anyone like each other, and they'll need all the help they can get to survive a planet ravaged by environmental catastrophe. Will they and the earth beneath their feet ultimately be torn apart? This is a vision of the end of the world that's brutal and nostalgic, whimsical and grounded, and ultimately timeless. The bumper that I played for this particular segment is from the Boom Studios promo for this comic book. And finally from IDW, the final issue, issue 300 of G.I. Joe Real American Hero by Larry Hama, S.L. Gallant, Jamie Sullivan. This is part five of the all-in storyline, and it is the final issue at IDW. And uh, eventually it will go somewhere. $6.99. This is an overlength issue with extras, and the cover features apparently every G.I. Joe that has ever been featured in the series. So uh, that has to be a ton of characters. Um, the blurb is using a brand new casino on Cobra Island as a front. Cobra has been busy resurrecting both dangerous villains and heroes behind the scenes, all in the hope of creating the deadliest Cobra army ever. Will the warriors of G.I. Joe foil their archenemy's evil machinations before it's too late? Or will the devious revanche robots have the last word over both the Joes and Cobra? The game for the fate of the world has reached its calamitous finale, and it's time for every single player to go all in. There you go. There's the title. All right, there you go. Those are your quick recommendations for the week of November 23rd. What's all the commotion? We've got another holiday to worry about. It seems Thanksgiving Day is upon us. I haven't even finished eating all my Halloween candy! Sally, Thanksgiving is a very important holiday. 
Ottawa was the first country in the world to make a national holiday to give thanks. Isn't he the cutest thing? Pass me my peas. I made them so I know they're okay. Was that remark uh, directed at me, Carla, by any chance? No, it was directed at your stupid turkey and your stupid stuffing and your stupid gravy. What's wrong with my gravy? Oh, nothing, except you could walk across the skin on top of it. Oh, well, I'm sorry, Julia Child. Here's your perfect peas. Oh, look, I spilled one. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Norm, I'm sorry about what I said about your gravy. All right. It's okay. And so are the carrots. <laughs> uh, anybody want some of these uh, little wee yams? <laughs> Woody, would you care to test the gravy skin? Never been witness to such a silly, soft. <laughs> Sam Malone, kiss your butt goodbye. As God is my witness. I thought turkeys could fly. Okay, let's do it. Let's talk about the Black Adam movie. So back on the Digest for October 23rd, I did reviews of the four-issue prequel series, the Black Adam Justice Society Files, and they were basically one-offs to give you a little background or to give you um, some preliminary information on Hawkman and Cyclone, Adam Smasher, and Dr. Fate the four members of the Justice Society featured in this movie. And then I said, you know, I guess apparent, I guess somewhere along the way I'm going to watch the movie, which I did. And um, I'm not going to go super in-depth um, because I don't think you really can. Uh, it's, it's a movie. It's um, ultimately, I think it's a little disposable. And, you know, you get a lot of character introduction. You meet the characters. You see their powers. It's a lot of fighting. It's a lot of confrontation. There's a little bit of a, a mystery. I hesitate to call it a mystery. But, you know, there's a little bit of trying to work in the actual Black Adam origin from ancient times into what's going on in modern times. Um I found it to be uh, easy to figure out. I don't think it was meant to be all that difficult, you know. So it's an origin story. It's an introduction. It feels very much like a prologue, right? It's like a first appearance to whet our appetites for how these characters might 
fit into the larger tapestry of the DCU as scattered as it is, but who knows, right? So it's not even, I don't even consider this sort of like an act one. To me, it feels like a prologue. It's like putting Black Adam into a situation or a status quo that he will then hold within the larger DCU movie-verse, you know. Um, because he's not he's not Black Adam throughout the movie until the final act, until, until sort of like the conclusion of the final act. Um, which means, you know, like along the way, I'm trying to suss out, you know, does he make for a good Black Adam? Does The Rock, you know, is this a role that he was born to play, as he says? Um, does it make sense? Uh, does it work? Uh, I guess, I guess it does. I was quite surprised how understated he was portraying the character. You know, he's far less bombastic than I thought The Rock was going to be. I don't know why I thought he was going to be his usual, you know, it's not like he's going to be like his character in Moana, right? But, um, I guess to layer in... A lot of the weight that the character has, especially concerning his origin, uh, finding himself in a whole new world. He has different, he has a different morality and he has different ethics and he has different ways of thinking. And okay, you know, they are portraying that and I get that, but is he really a good Black Adam? You know, I sort of feel like, eh, I get it. But just like the movie, everything was very surface level. And I don't think they really went all in on what they were trying to do. I'm finding that a lot about a lot of geek programming, a lot of comic book programming. You know, they're giving us just enough because God forbid they give us more, you know. Um, along with his conflict, if you want to call it that, his people see him as a hero, a leader. He doesn't. Maybe he doesn't feel like he belongs in that kind of status quo. Eventually, he does get there. Again, a lot of it has to do with his origin story. I guess the fun of this movie, and this is something my younger brother said, um, and my younger brother's in, what, I think he's either in his late 30s, early 40s. He just said it was a lot of fun, you know? Like, he just wanted to go see this movie to see The Rock be a superhero because to a generation, to many generations, he is a superhero, right? Like if you think of like the wrestling stuff and all the the movies he has done, and now he is a, an actual superhero within one of the, you know, um, two big universes, it kind of makes sense why some people just want to see him toss people around and straight up kill people and destroy things. And he is, you know, Superman Unchained. Um, in many ways, the Black Adam character is like a mashup of like Namor and Dr. Doom and Magneto, you know, someone who, at least in the 2000s, when they gave him his own country, um, you know, wants to, wants to have recognition for that country, wants to have certain power, um, but does things in a way that is just not going to fit in within the larger world. So it's a big fight movie, and if that's what you're going in for, I guess that's, you know, what you might expect from a rock movie. Um, I ultimately wanted something a little richer, a little deeper. Some of the stuff that I did like, surprisingly, because his, 
the the actor's interviews are terrible, but the actor who played Adam Smasher, that character was a lot of fun and got the most um, reaction from me. Uh, he's like a mashup of Scott Lang, Ant-Man, and Spider-Man, you know, because he has an awkwardness as a superhero, but he also is young. And there are many times I was like, okay, this is this is Adam Smasher or the actor doing their best Paul Rudd. There's a scene where he's running to, um, you know, join the, the uh, one of the conflicts. And he's like, I'm zeroing in on your location. And then there's a huge, huge explosion behind him. And he turns around and goes, and it's like, oh, clearly he was running the wrong way, right? That was a funny moment. Um, the way they showcase his powers, the way they utilize his powers in trying to save people is, you know, pretty good. Um, and the CGI for him worked, you know, that sort of worked for me. I think the costume design all over for all the characters, they're pretty good. I don't, I think the Hawkman is a little busy. Um, I'm not a fan of like total CGI Dr. Fate, um, but you know, it kind of works. One of the things I did like, and this is where I really wished they would have gone deeper, is that they did try to give um, the relationship between Black Adam and Amon Tomaz, the young boy, they kind of wanted to give that a spin of the Billy Batson Shazam Shazam angle or Freddy and Shazam from the movie, from their movie, from the Shazam, first Shazam movie. Um, because the younger boy was trying to teach him things and was trying to acclimate him to the to this new modern century. Um, but it didn't go deep enough. I, I kind of wanted it a little deeper, but it is there and it makes for some humorous moments. Uh, I do like Sarah Shahi as Adriana Tomas because I like that character and I like the Isis character. Um, uh, and I did like her story in those comics as well. She was the one that kind of really was the focus point of trying to challenge Black Adam to become something bigger and something better. Um, some of the flying effects could have been better. The way he kind of was just standing upright and zooming through, um, it, it it always comes across too controlled. Like whether it's um, someone just levitating or walking on the air, and this goes across all geek media. Like when they're when they are so static in the air, and there's sort of like no allowance for wind and gusts and shifting of whatever. You know, I'm sort of like that's nah, a little too fake for me. Um, the performances are fine. Uh, you get just enough of who the Justice Society are. I never really understood why, how they knew so much about about Black Adam, and like they, it was almost like they were waiting for him. But why, and why did they think he was going to be such an immediate threat? Other than you know the flashbacks that we see and some of the explanations, you know, to call in Amanda Waller and and. Uh, you know, Hawkman was like on the ready. It just, I, maybe we should have seen that. Maybe we should have seen more of why they thought he was going to be such a menace. So it's a big sugar rush. That's really what this movie is. I'm sure people can make connections with some of the characters to, to their Mar to Marvel characters. You know, when you see Dr. Fate, people probably just think, oh, you know, he's just a Doctor Strange ripoff when really Doctor Fate was first, right? And then you have a character that can grow just like Ant-Man. So, 
you know, there's going to be a lot of similarities. Um, I don't have many notes. I, I, I wrote a whole bunch of notes for the movie, but, you know, there to go through them all, um, I'm not interested in it because, you know, the movie just didn't land for me. Uh, it The whole opening prologue made me feel like they were trying to create Kondok as kind of like a Wakanda for the DC universe. I do like that the character of Octon, the the pharaoh, the mean pharaoh in in the prologue, he goes back to to um, Batman and the Outsiders. He goes back to Metamorpho's origin, and then he was used again in JSA, uh, in the JSA BC storyline from the JSA series in the '90s and the 2000s. So that was kind of fun to look that up and go, oh right, that's right, he's. He's a Batman and the Outsiders character. Um, in the present day, inner gang is ruling Kondok. You know, it's like, again, God, more more inner gang. Like, we need that. There was a ton of DCU merchandise. I mean, we saw Wonder Woman and we saw comic books. We saw the superhero version or comic book versions. We saw the movie versions um, because Amon reads comics, so like we saw Batman Odyssey and Cyborg and Flash and Green Lantern. It was like DC selling their comics in-house, which is like a good move, right? Like, okay, that's cool. Let people know that these comics exist. I'm I'm all for that. When we see Black Adam get his powers, uh, you know, they list all the powers that he has. Stamina, swiftness, strength, wisdom, power, courage. Many of those we see on display. I probably would have liked to seen, I would have liked wisdom to be used more in a way that um, maybe was a little heavy-handed even uh, as he was kind of learning the ropes uh, when he was in modern times, you know. Why list all of these powers if you're not going to show them necessarily, right? Um, uh, I mean, we saw strength, we saw speed, we saw power, stamina, of course, Courage, I guess. I don't know. I'd have to think about that one. Um, it was fun learning about the little information that we got for the Justice Society, that there actually was an original Atom Smasher, which was in the prequel comic, and then we actually see who it is, and he's played by Henry Winkler, Al Pratt played by Henry Winkler, which is kind of funny. That's kind of funny. Um, there were a lot of comic book things, you know, like Hawkman being in St. Roque, uh, the Atom Smasher, kind of like Wally West, he has to eat a lot because growing burns through his metabolism. We got Nth Metal, we got a Hawkman jet that looked like something out of the mo- uh, out of the comics, which was cool. Um, apparently, the Doctor Fate helmet is from outer space. I think they said that's a little awkward. Um, I'm not quite sure how Hawkman can go toe to toe with Black Adam, unless it has something to do with the nth metal and with the armor. Like, the armor, be, you see, again, like Wakanda, like, is nth metal um, or Eternium, you know, like, there's all these new metals. Is nth metal able to absorb kinetic energy so that it doesn't hurt so much when he's being punched by, by Black Adam? Because Black Adam doesn't look like he's really holding back, you know. We never we hear a little bit more about Cyclone's origin, but just like the prequel comics, we don't we don't get a name, we don't get a a, a flashback or anything like that. 
um, when they were fighting in Amun's home, and there's a lot of punching and tearing of the hero posters, I thought, oh, that's that could be subtext to what uh, The Rock w- used to always say when he was like, you know, there's going to be a power change of within the hierarchy of the DC universe, you know? And it's like, oh, okay. They're kind of hitting that one over the head. Uh, and then it ends, and, you know, we get, um, we get a little bit of a sacrifice from Black Adam to try to do the right thing, and then he comes back, and apparently the Suicide Squad, they're holding, like, a whole bunch of people in some kind of black site, which is, uh, I don't know what they're going to do with that. Once we get to the ending, when it's Black Adam versus Savick, I mean, it, you know, it just kind of ends. And then he makes a decision whether he's going to be uh, a ruler, a protector, a leader, or whatever. And uh, and then that's it. Um, you know, they kind of set up that maybe Adam Smasher might join Black Adam some point in the future, which again is just like the comics. And he takes the name Black Adam by the end. So, and then of course there's the end credit scene, which I won't talk about in case, in case you haven't seen it, and you want to be surprised. Um, but you know, again, how this all fits within the larger DC movie verse is, it's all up in the air. So, who knows? So, yeah, it's I I doubt I would ever see this again. You know, I kind of put this. Uh, on par with something like the Captain Marvel movie from Marvel, oddly enough, right? Captain Marvel, Black Adam, where it's just, it's a whole bunch of origin stuff and it gets us to a point and it gives us explanation, but ultimately it's what they're going to, how they're going to be used later that really matters. That's how I feel, you know, um, because the the movie itself is, you know, I was I was bored with Captain Marvel, and this one I was kind of just like, uh, you, know, you sort of just watch it and and veg while you watch it, you know. So uh, that's it. That's really all I want to say. Okay, let me know what you thought about Black Adam or anything talked about in this week's digest. Peter at thedailyrios.com. Go visit the website thedailyrios.com and the Instagram. Go follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Uh, subscribe to me on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. Give me some, you know, stars or likes or a review. Uh, this has been The Daily Rios, episode 590. We are on our way to 600. For Sunday, November 27th, 2022, talk to you soon. Hey, boss, I'd better stay on a few days and teach the new girl the office routine. Oh, no, that won't be answered. Thanks. I'll, I'll take care of it. Well, she won't know what to do about the bookkeeping and filing. Oh, well, I'll show her. <laughs> well, who'll show her what to do in the dark room? Do you care to withdraw that question? Please. I think so. <laughs> <laughs>